Please take your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 1, as as was just mentioned. As I mentioned earlier this morning, Romans is one of Paul's letters to the church at Rome. He had never been there, uh, but his goal was to travel through to meet the church, and he was writing this letter as a letter that would go before him before he arrived. And one of the purposes of this letter was to simply explain to the church there in Rome, the Christians there, what the gospel is, the gospel that he believed in, and the gospel that he proclaimed as an evangelist and as a church planter. And so we see right off here in Romans chapter 1 that he deals with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to look at our text, it's Romans 1 verse 16. But before we get to Romans 1.16, Paul says in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also. And so Paul hasn't yet come, but he's telling the church at Rome, he's telling the, the Christians there, I'm coming to you and I'm excited to preach the gospel to you, this message that has brought us to salvation. And I can say the, the same thing to you here this morning. This church here in Georgia that I am eager, I'm excited to preach the gospel to you as well. There's only one message that God has designated to be for the salvation of this world. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. No other message, no other philosophy, no other system, no other thought or anything else compares with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there's one thing that matters for you in your life and in your death, the one thing that matters is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our text here is Romans 1 verse 16. And Mark Lloyd-Jones, one of the well-known preachers, about 100 years ago, 50 years ago, he said this regarding these two verses, uh, verses 16 and 17. He says, quote, There are no two verses of greater importance in the whole of Scripture, unquote. So there's a lot to be said in these two verses. We're just looking at verse 16 this morning, but this is a powerful verse. And it is explaining a powerful gospel. Well, let's look at our text. Paul says here, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So our first point is, what's the gospel? Read this verse. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel, the gospel of Christ. The first question we should ask is, well, what is this gospel? The word gospel in America today is used in a wide variety of ways. Even in evangelical circles, the word gospel, the term gospel, is used in many different ways. So we must ask when we read this verse, what is this gospel? that Paul is referring to. 
So first, what is the gospel that we see here in Romans chapter 1? As Paul begins this letter, he mentions already a few things about this gospel. And let's look at them briefly. Look at verse 1 of Romans chapter 1. Paul says here that it is the gospel of God. It's the gospel of God. This is God's gospel. <coughs> it's not my gospel. It's not Paul's gospel. It's not your gospel. This is God's gospel. The gospel is about God, ultimately. And the gospel is a message from God to you, into this world. The gospel is a message that our Creator has sent to us. The most important message, the only message that we need to hear, and it's for everyone. For America, for the Jews, for all the Gentiles, for the people in Africa, for the people in South America, for the people in Papua New Guinea, China, and India. It's a message from God for this world. That's what the gospel is. And that's what Paul says here in Romans 1, verse 1. It's the gospel of God. Look at verse 2. Paul says here that it is a gospel that has been promised before through the prophets. Why is that Well, one of the things Paul's saying here is, this is not something new. This gospel that I'm preaching to you this morning, the gospel Paul preached 2,000 years ago, the gospel Jesus Christ himself preached, is not a new message. Paul says here, this has been promised beforehand through the prophets of the Old Testament. In other words, this message, this news, this gospel has always existed. It's God's gospel, and it's been prophesied since the very beginning of time. And if we know our Bibles, we're thinking back to Genesis chapter 3, right? God created everything by the word of his mouth. He spoke and all things came to be. He created our first parents, Adam and Eve. He said, don't sin, and they sinned. And from then on, God cursed everything in sin. One of the catechism questions for our children, did God leave all mankind to perish in our sin? No. He promised and sent a Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel that God promised from Genesis chapter 3, from the very beginning of time, and all throughout the Old Testament. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 2. All the prophets prophesied of this gospel. That's, that should be encouraging if you as a Christian because this gospel that you believe in is not a new religion. It didn't begin 2,000 years ago when Jesus came. This has always been the true religion, if you want to use that term. Look at verse 3. This is how Paul is unfolding the gospel at the very beginning of his letter here. Verse 3, the gospel is about a man. See that verse 3? Concerning a man. This man is Jesus. And the gospel is about his incarnation. See that in verse 3. The one who came from the line of David, from the seed of David, he came as a man. This one we call Jesus Christ. He was born of a woman, and he was supernaturally born of a virgin. That's Christianity. This is the 
gospel we believe in. This one who has eternally existed, yet he came as a man. He was born from virgin. And this man that Paul mentions here in verse 3, this one who has come, he lived a sinless life. The eternal Son of God, the one who forever existed, he took on our nature. Never once did he sin. Never once did he disobey his father, or did he break the law. Not once. In his thoughts, in his words, in his actions, never. Nobody in this room can say that. Nobody upon this planet can say that, truthfully. And yet there is one who came Because in him there is no sin. The gospel is about this man. His incarnation and his sinless life. Then look at verse 4. It climaxes in the resurrection. You see, I'm sure that 2,000 years ago when this man was hanging on the cross. He was crucified as a criminal. He was crucified as an enemy of the state. He was crucified as a blasphemer. Everybody pretty much hated him. And when he was crucified, nobody came to his rescue. His own disciples ran away. And I'm sure while he hung on that cross, the Jews, the Romans, and Satan himself, they were thinking, we've won. We did it. This guy that we don't like, we crucified him. He's dead finally. He's done. He's off our hands. But what does Paul say here in verse 4? That the gospel climaxes in the resurrection of this man. My friends, this man, this God-man, Jesus Christ, he died, but he did not stay dead. He defeated death. And that is a message this world needs to hear. Because what is your biggest problem? And my biggest problem, what is the biggest problem that this world has today? It's your sin and your death. The gospel is good news because it tells us of a man, this God-man, who's defeated death. My friends, if you believe the gospel, if you're a Christian today, you have put your faith in this one who's defeated death for you. And you rejoice. You don't have to face death like everybody else in the world. Because he has defeated it for you. He's defeated your sin. He's defeated Satan. He's defeated the world. And if there's one to trust, if there's a message to believe in, it's this gospel. And this is the gospel that, that Paul is outlining for us right at the beginning of his letter to Rome, to the church at Rome. Then notice what he says here in verse 9. Hence, it's the gospel of God's Son. Because the gospel, as we've, as we've seen, is ultimately about Jesus Christ. So that's how he outlines in, in Romans chapter 1. But what is the gospel 
more broadly in the New Testament? As I said earlier, this is the most important question of all. What is the gospel? So what does the New Testament say about the gospel? I'm just going to highlight here three things. First of all, the gospel is about the substitutionary death of this one, Jesus Christ. You don't have to turn to these. I'm going to read through them quickly. But Romans 5, verses 6 and 8 says, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his love towards us, towards you, in that as a sinner, Christ died for you. That's the gospel. The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, the God-man. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. You see, we hear that phrase a lot, right, as Christians, Christ died for us. But understand what the Bible says when it tells us that Christ has died for us. It was a substitutionary death. In other words, if Christ died for you, then all have died, as Paul says elsewhere. If Christ has died for you, you don't have to die for your own sin. Because Christ has died for you. And that should make you rejoice as a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, that should make you run to Christ. He has died for sinners. Now the world says, who cares? I don't need someone to die for me. I don't have sin anyway. But the Bible makes it very clear, as I've mentioned, the biggest problem that this world has is our sin. And Christ came to put away sin by dying in our place. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God the Father. That's the gospel, Christ dying for us. Because you can't go to God by yourself. You can't make it to heaven on your own. Nobody can. But Christ came to die for us, to bring us to God. You want to get to God? You want to get to heaven? It is through the death, the substitutionary death of this man that we speak of, Jesus Christ. My friends, if you haven't believed this message, believe it today. Trust in it today. If you're old, if you're young, it doesn't matter. The gospel is also about imputation. In other words, Jesus took our sin and we gave him our, our, we gave Jesus our sin and he gave us his righteousness. It's imputation. Think of 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says that God the Father made Jesus, who didn't know sin, who committed no sin, God made him to be sin for us said we would become the very righteousness of God in him. That verse speaks of imputation. You can give Jesus your sin for free. If you would give him your sin, you don't have to bear it yourself. See, one of the biggest problems of all the other religions in this world is that they say you can actually get rid of your own sin. If you work hard enough, if you do this, if you do that, or if you don't do this and that, you can actually get rid of your sin. You can deal with it yourself. But the gospel says, no, you can't deal with your own sin. Nobody can. But the gospel is about this. It's imputation that you can freely give Jesus your sin. And he'll take it. 
He won't reject you. If you come to Christ, and if you have as a Christian, you have given Christ your sin. You have said, Lord Jesus, take my sin away. I can't get rid of it. I'm going to die with my own sin. Take it from me and give me your righteousness. And Jesus Christ does that. That's the gospel. You see, it's not good enough just for us to be innocent. Because some people say, well, I've, I've never sinned. That was the problem of the rich young ruler, remember? Jesus came to him, or he came to Jesus. You know, what should I do to inherit eternal life? You know, he thought he was, he thought he was a good guy. He thought he was innocent. He thought he was perfect. And Jesus met him right where he needs to meet him. Well, you know, if you obey the law perfectly, you can. He said, I've done that. You see, even if we have, even if that guy did, he, he didn't. But even if he did, that's not good enough. Because God doesn't just require innocence to enter heaven. God re- requires perfect righteousness to get to heaven. See, not sinning isn't good enough. You must be perfect in every way. You must, must be perfectly righteous. My friends, the gospel is about this one who knew no sin, but he was made sin for you so that you would become the very righteousness of God. He will give you his righteousness. And if you're a Christian, you've experienced that. You know that the very righteousness of God has been given to you so that you can stand before God. Not in your own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the God-man. Romans 3, verse 26 He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. See, God can be just with you. God can justly allow you into heaven. Why? Because you're perfect. Because you have the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. My friends, this is the gospel. This is the greatest news for you to hear, for the world to hear. But the gospel also, as we see in the New Testament, is about propitiation. It's mentioned in Romans, Hebrews, and in 1 John. Propitiation is about the Father's wrath being appeased. Now you might think, well, why does God's wrath need to be appeased? Why does God need to stop being angry? Well, the Bible makes it very clear that God is angry with the wicked every day. The Bible makes it very clear that God's wrath abides upon the wicked of this world. That his wrath is being revealed against the all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is angry at the wicked. God hates sin. And his wrath is, is burning. And it will be fulfilled ultimately in hell forever against the wicked. That's why God created hell. One, one main reason is when the ungodly go there, his wrath will be against them forever and forever and forever. God does not like sin. Adam and Eve ate one piece of fruit, and God cursed humanity. God takes sin very seriously. And the gospel is about God's anger against sin, but it's about one who came and stood between us and God. And he appeased God's anger. My friend, if you're a Christian before you were a Christian, before the Spirit made you born again, before you trusted the gospel, God's wrath and his anger was directed upon you, and you had no hope. But this one that we speak of, this Jesus, he came and he stood between you and God. 
and the very anger, the very wrath that God had directed against you came all upon Jesus Christ there on the cross for you if you're a Christian. I mean, if that, if that should, doesn't make us rejoice, if that doesn't make us leap for joy, nothing's going to, right? This is the greatest news in all of the world that Jesus appeased God's wrath for you. And my friend, if you're not a Christian, and if you never do become a Christian, God's wrath will be upon you forever and forever. So I highly recommend that you believe this gospel. Anyone who ends up in hell, it's their own fault. Because Christ has made a way of salvation. And he freely gives it to us. So that's how the gospel is is defined and explained in the New Testament. Substitutionary death, imputation, and propitiation. And I know we went over those briefly. But in summary, that's what the gospel is. That's the message that comes to us from God. That's the message for you and for me. And it's the message for the world. So that's our first point. We see here in verse 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? And we just saw Now, secondly, the gospel has power to save. Look at our text. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Paul, why are you not ashamed of this gospel? He says, for or because it's God's power. It's the power of God for salvation or to salvation. It's God's power to save everyone who believes. The gospel is about God's power to bring salvation to sinners. And who are sinners? You and me. The gospel is about God coming to this world in his power to bring salvation to mankind, sinful mankind. That's what the gospel is. That's why the gospel applies to everybody. Nobody could ever rightfully stand up before God and say, the gospel doesn't apply to me. The gospel applies to everybody because we have all sinned. And the gospel is about God's power to save sinners. Whatever it is that saves sinners needs to be powerful. I mean, think of it. To understand this salvation that the Bible speaks of, we need to first go back to the state of our first parents and why we need salvation in the first place. How did God create Adam and Eve? He created them holy. He created them innocent. He created them perfect. There was no sin on this planet. That's how God originally created our first parents. But as we've seen throughout the scriptures and as we've already heard this morning, they sinned and God cursed them all of their children, and all of creation. Everything is cursed in sin. That's why when you turn on the news, all you hear, really, is bad news. Why? Because we live in a cursed world. Why is there war and famine and earthquakes and all these terrible things? Because we live in a cursed world. So to understand this salvation that the Bible speaks of, we need to understand how God first created everything and then what God is going to do through this salvation. You see, 
really what salvation is, is God reversing the curse upon this creation. And whatever, whatever is going to reverse this curse, whatever it is that is going to take your sin away, whatever it is, is that, that will deliver you from an eternal hell and deliver you from the very wrath of Almighty God, whatever it is that's going to do that, it's powerful. Our good works can't do that. Again, that's the problem with every other religion. Our good works can't reverse this curse. Our good works cannot extinguish the flames of an eternal hell. But the gospel can. And that's why the gospel is good news. The gospel is not bad news. You know, there's no, there's no need for anybody to be offended at the gospel. But it shows how depraved this world is. That when you declare to them the only hope, the message of joy, the message of peace, the message of salvation, they get offended. And they hate you for it. The gospel is powerful because it can reverse the curse and it can actually save you. If you're a Christian, you know that's true. The gospel has saved you. Not that it might save you. You're not hoping, well, you know, I'm taking a pretty big risk here. I don't know if I'm going to actually be saved when I stand before God. You know, that's, that's what the Muslims believe, right? They say, well, I'm hoping that when I stand on there on Judgment Day that I'll be allowed into paradise. I'm hoping. It's, you know, there's a good chance, but I'm not sure. A lot of Catholics believe that. That's most religions. Well, I'm hoping it'll happen. I'm not sure. But my friends, the gospel is so good. The gospel is so powerful that if you believe the gospel, it does save you. And your sins are removed. You're not hoping. It is a guarantee. Why? Because this one that we've been speaking of, this God-man Jesus Christ, he has made it certain. This is a gospel you can trust. This is a gospel you can believe in. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, quote, the gospel is God's way of saving us, unquote. And he says also that the gospel, quote, is the announcement of what God has done in order to save us, unquote. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want to read to you a few verses from this section in 1 Corinthians so that you can see there's a lot of the same themes that Paul brings up again that we're seeing in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. 1 Corinthians 1, and start with me at verse 18. Paul says here, for the word of the cross, what's the word of the cross? The gospel, right? Paul says here, the word of the cross, that's the gospel, the message of Christ. He said, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, right? When you tell the gospel to your unsaved coworker, or to your neighbor, or to the guy at the bus stop, or to the woman at the grocery store, whoever it is. What's the natural response? It's foolish. That's ridiculous. I'm not going to believe that. I don't want to believe that. I don't want to embrace that. That's what Paul's saying here. That's the irony of the gospel. And that just shows how much sin has corrupted and twisted humanity. 
Paul says here, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, what is it? It's the power of God. Right? What's Paul saying in Romans chapter 1? It's the power of God. That's what the gospel is. It's God's power coming to us to save us. Then drop down to verse 21. 1 Corinthians 1.21. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to what? To save those who believe. For indeed, Jews, they ask for signs, and Gentiles, they search for wisdom. But what do we do? We don't do that. We preach Christ crucified. What's that? The gospel. Paul's saying, we're not doing all this other nonsense. We preach the gospel. Then what does he say after that? To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. They don't want to believe in a crucified Messiah. A mess, uh, this, this guy who said he was the Messiah but really was a blasphemer. They, they don't want to believe that. To them, it's a stumbling block, the gospel. And what is it to Gentiles? What is it to the rest of the world? What is it to Americans? It's foolishness. But to those of you in this room who have been called by the Holy Spirit, to those of you in this room who were born again, what is the gospel? What do we see here in this passage? Paul says, it's the power of God. It says, Christ, the power of God. And you know it is. You've experienced this power. You've experienced this salvation. You're no longer worried about your sin and going to hell and thinking, well, you know, there's no hope. You know there's hope because the gospel has come to you with power. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Then drop down to verse 1 of chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brethren, I didn't come with superiority of speech or wisdom. Paul's saying, you know, I didn't come to you as one of the great politicians, as one of the great rhetorical speakers, the guys that get on the radio, the guys that get on TV. I didn't come that way. I just came as a normal guy proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. What is that? That's the gospel. Paul says, I came to you with one message. I didn't come trying to impress you. I didn't come trying to make a name for myself. I came to you to declare to you, to announce to you one message. Jesus Christ and him crucified for you. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message, this gospel message, and my preaching of the gospel, were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in what? In demonstration of the Spirit and power. You see the themes that Paul's bringing up? Then he he finishes this verse here by saying, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men. My friends, if you're a Christian, your faith is not in the wisdom of men. Your faith is not in some good preacher or some good book or some good denomination. Your faith is in this powerful gospel. Your faith does not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the very power of God. You know why you can have assurance of salvation? You know why you know you can get to heaven? And be certain 
because your faith doesn't rest in the wisdom of men. Your faith rests in the power of God through the gospel. So I wanted to bring that passage up to show you the themes that Paul brings up. So the gospel is whose power? As we see in our, in our text, Romans 1.16, it's God's power. It's not man's power. The gospel is not a man-made power. Nobody would have thought of the gospel. You know, if we really did evolve, this message, this book, would not be here. This just doesn't come by chance. People don't just invent the gospel. The gospel is God's power. It's the supernatural, divine, and sovereign power of Almighty God. That's what the gospel is. That's why it's good to believe the gospel, right? Martin Lloyd-Jones says, quote, The gospel is not something that tells us what we must do to save ourselves. It tells us how God has provided and produced his own way of salvation and how he applies it, unquote. That's what the gospel is. The gospel doesn't come to you and say, okay, if you obey this rule, if you obey this command, if you wear these clothes, if you don't eat these, this kind of food, you'll get to heaven. That's not the gospel. If that was the gospel, we're doomed because we screw up day after day. We're sinners. The gospel is about what God has already done. What's God, what, what has God done? He sent his son to die on a cross for sinners, to die in your place, to give you his righteousness, to appease the wrath of Almighty God for you. That's what God has done. He didn't say, I might do it. That's what God has done. That's why we call it news, right? When you turn on the TV or the radio and you're listening to news or watching news, it's telling you what's been done, what's been accomplished. That's why we call the gospel news. And it's not ordinary news. It's good news. See, man has always been trying to save himself, but to no avail. Has any other religion made a way of salvation? Of course not. Now, we started this back with our first parents, Adam and Eve. They sinned. They realized they screwed up. They realized they were naked. They realized, great, now what do we do? We've got to hide from God. And whoever thought of it, I have an idea. Let's sow leaves together. And God comes to them, most likely the second person of the Trinity himself. And he's like, what are you wearing? <laughs> and what does he do? He doesn't say, you know, that's good enough. He doesn't say, listen, you gave it your best effort. That's good enough. You know, I'll, I'll just overlook your sin. He doesn't do that. He acknowledges that they're sinful. He acknowledges that they're naked. And he sacrifices, makes a sacrifice for them, and then covers them in his sacrifice and what he provides. Man has always been trying to do it himself, but to no avail. The gospel is God's power to save sinful mankind. Salvation is not man's effort, not man's doing. It's not our work. It's God's power from first to last. God doesn't do 99% of it and then say, okay, if you do 1%, good job. You're going to make it to heaven. God says, you can do nothing. I will save you. 
And that's the God to believe in, right? That's the God to trust, the God who comes to you in your weakest point, your greatest need, and says, I will do it all for you. And as I conclude the second point here, since the gospel is God's power, then the gospel belongs to him, right? We better not change it. We better not repackage it. We better not sugarcoat it. Or think we're sugarcoating it. I mean, how, how do you sugarcoat the, great, the greatest message? We better not try to make it culturally relevant, right? That's what we hear a lot in our day and age. We got to be culturally relevant. You know what? The gospel already is culturally relevant. If there's anything that's culturally relevant, it's the gospel. The gospel meets every culture at our greatest need. The gospel meets every individual at their greatest need and offers free and complete salvation. We don't have to try to make it culturally relevant. It already is. And since the gospel is God's power, it will work and it will succeed. That's what I mentioned this morning when we were talking about missions. It's going to happen. It's going to work. Why? Because the gospel's God's power. If it was up to me, if it was up to Paul or you, it would have died day one. But the gospel's going to work. Why? Because it's God's power. The gospel will save God's people. The gospel will build the church of Christ. The gospel will get you to heaven. It will. Because it's God's power. All right, well, let's move now to our third and final point. And we'll move through this quickly. Look at our text again, Romans 1.16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation. He doesn't end there. He says to everyone who believes. He doesn't just say to everyone, right? And that's very important. Paul doesn't say the gospel is God's power to save everyone. He doesn't say that. The, the verse says the gospel is God's power to save everyone who believe. So let me ask you this question. Whom is the gospel for? Whom is the gospel for? The gospel is for everyone. With that exception. The gospel is to be preached to everyone with that exception. The gospel is for the good, for the bad, the gospel is for the rich and the poor. The gospel is for every race, every nationality, every economic status, every age, every sex. The gospel is for you. If you're a believer or an unbeliever, the gospel is for you. And that, that's good news. That when I hear that, I rejoice. The gospel's for Caleb. The gospel's for you.
What do we read in the Bible? Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. My friend, if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. If you have called upon the name of the Lord, you are saved. The most well-known verse in all the Bible, God loves the world that he sent his only son. God, God loves this creation. He didn't create it to throw it into hell. God created this, this planet, the cosmos, every individual. God created it for good. And he loves his creation. That he sent his son. He didn't have to do that. But God loves his creation that he actually sent his son to redeem it and to save it. That whoever, whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish, but you'll be saved. My friend, the gospel is for everyone. But the second question is this. Whom does the gospel actually save? And that's a totally different question, right? The gospel is for everybody, without exception. But who does the gospel actually save? And what does Paul say here in our text? It's God's power to save everyone who believes it. You see, you can't be saved unless you believe this gospel. There's only one way of salvation for every individual on this planet. And that's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's through the message that God has provided. The gospel doesn't actually save everybody. Right? That, that's common sense. And why do I say that's common sense? Think of Cain. Did the gospel save Cain? Did the gospel save Esau? Did the gospel save Pharaoh? Did the gospel save Judas? And many, many, many others, right? The gospel doesn't actually save everybody. The gospel saves only those who believe it. And that's, ta- that's taken a huge leap for a human to do that. For a human being to say, I can do nothing, I completely trust and the work of Jesus Christ. For a human to get to that level, yeah, that is a huge leap. That's faith. Trusting in Christ. The gospel saves those who believe it. So what does God require you to do with the gospel? He requires you to believe it, to put your faith in it, to trust it, to rely upon it, to depend upon it. That's what God requires of you. You don't benefit from the gospel by your performance. You benefit, from, by the, you benefit from the gospel by the performance of somebody else. Jesus Christ. See, in a sense, you could say the gospel is about good works. And we're saved by good works. But not our good works. The good works of Jesus Christ. God doesn't require you to perform God doesn't require you to work. God requires you to believe the gospel. That's it. To trust him. To take him at his word. So when God says, I can save you, I sent my son to take away your sin, he requires you to believe him. The greatest tragedy in all the world is people not believing this gospel. 
And so my friends, I want to encourage you and challenge you. If you're a Christian, tell this gospel to those around you who don't know the gospel, who don't believe this gospel, and invite them, encourage them to believe this gospel. There's no need to beat around the bush. Tell them the gospel and invite them to freely believe it and to trust in it. And if you're not a Christian here, if, you're, if you haven't believed the gospel, then today, now, trust in the gospel. Rely on the gospel. Stake your eternity on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.